This week on the show, we have Dragonfly BSD 6.4 and the new release. Running OpenZFS, choosing between FreeBSD and Linux in comparison. OpenBSD Mastery File Systems ebook has leaked in certain ways, catching 71% spam and getting better at that. Crazy Unix shell prompts, Linux binary compatibility, running Ubuntu on FreeBSD. Reproducible Build Summit Venue 2022 review, or reports more like, and more this week's episode of BSD. BSD Now, episode 491, Catch the Spammers, recorded on the 4th of January 2023. Still learning the year number. Increase. This week's episode... How many How many times have you written it wrong, Benedict? Mm, a couple times already. I had to update our template so that it's not always showing 2022 here. <laughs> I, 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 I started a, a five-year diary, and like you could just start it any yeah. year. Um, and I wrote, uh, so it has like start, handwritten. It started in the twenty twenties. Mm. Yeah, it's handwritten. Um, and I wrote twenty two <laughs> for the first four days. I realized today. Um, yeah, anyway, I'm just getting used to it. Sorry. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com/bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people and use that software. We recommend it to you warmly. And if you want to support this show by giving us a bit of money for better audio equipment to record better episodes with audio quality off the charts, then uh, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Regardless, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. We are bringing you the latest news and headlines from the BSB space, but some people are like, it's difficult to listen to you, not because of you, but the audio. We know about this. It's uh, known and we're working on it. It's just bear with us for this episode or skip it if it's unbearable. The next one will hopefully be better. I, I, I like you said, <laughs> off the charts. I'm pretty sure I'm clipping. So yeah, I'm, I'm already off the charts. Um, maybe we want to be on the charts. Like we never had any promises about certain audio quality levels and people are like expecting this to be always the case. I mean, if you've had this for a long time. And um, I don't know. I might, I, might, I might have to build a recording system because... Not being able to press buttons. We need to have a studio, a right? Thing. Like a professional recording equipment. How hard could it be? And a Concord to get us there. Yeah. Something. Right. One studio. Three studios? Yeah. Or four. Four. I mean, Alan has it all set up. Anyway, he, he has this, it known. Anyway, this is, this is not uh, speculating about uh, futuristic audio studios now. This is BST now. Uh, and this week in the headlines, we have uh, a release from Dragonfly BSD. And they have released 64, which feels like it implies something, but it doesn't. Uh, Dragonfly BSD 6.4 released the 30th of December, 2022, the last year. Dragonfly version 6.4 is the next step in the 6.x release series. This version has hardware support for Type 2 hypervisors with NVMM, an AMD GPU driver, the experimental ability to remote mount Hammer 2 volumes, and many other changes. The details of all commits between 6.2 and 6.4 are available in the associated commit messages for 6.40. I have a list of big ticket items. Um, 
upgrading. If you have an existing 5.x or 6.0 system and you're running a generic kernel, the normal upgrade process to described below will work. Um, CD user source, uh, git fetch origin, git branch, git checkout, git pool, make build all, make install all, reboot, make in RD. Make InitRD is optional for systems with unencrypted disks. See InitRD man page for details. Don't forget to upgrade your existing packages. 6.4 packages have already been built and are immediately available. That's a nice straightforward upgrade process. All other changes since prior release. Um, security issues. Re recommended updating all systems. A locally exploitable kernel vulnerability was fixed for this release. They don't say what it was. Uh, kernel fixes, uh, fix exec CP CVPE's environment passing, fix ktrace's handling of long system call return values, fix uh, sysv semaphore panic related to an exit race, fix a name cache bloating issue related to dead entries that could slow down systems over time, fix several name cache eviction issues which were interfacing with n lookup operations, Fix name cache issues that evicted too many resolved entries, causing unnecessary lookups. Critical section count mismatch panics are now more verbose. Fix multiple issues with vnode recyclement, which could release in a long-running system slowing down. Generally speaking, there were leaks in vnode state counts, which could prevent uh, VNLRU from either running or from finding recyclable vnodes. Implement mwalkall's MCL current feature and generally match with Linux-like expectations. Fix a lock order reversal and deadlock in cache resolve MP, which will get hit with concurrent path lookups across mount boundaries. Add to the GTaskQ API from FreeBSD. Um, file systems, uh, big chunk of fixes in Hammer 2. Uh, fix runaway kernel memory allocations using block free. Fix chain allocations. Fix panics related to USB stick pool of mounted H2 file system. Report critical bulk free transitions that are not supposed to happen, fix check fail paths that might mangle an inode in memory, validate the inode number on media against the inode number being looped up, uh, fixes in tempfs, fix heavily threaded reader races against deletions, um, improve the performance of cookie seeks during directory scans, ms-dos-fs, fix a case where a non-dot-lookup returns the current directory during a path lookup, Generate an error instead of a panic when in-use map is inconsistent. Sanity check count from BPB, which is a really difficult acronym. Uh, fix mounting when the device sector size is larger than 512 bytes. Uh, fix slash dev prefix is necessary when looking up mount device. EXT2FS, do more accurate check for root inode and directory entries. In networking, um, fix broken mixed network and host IP specifications in IP tables. The network prefix was improperly inherited from prior entries. Uh, PF fix set skip on. PF make colon zero no alias also ignore link local v6 addresses. IPv6 v6 only now silently accepts any value for socket opt fixing certain bits of third party code. IF bridge fix a broadcast issue that could sometimes cause ARPs to be lost. Uh, IF bridge distinguish between interfaces that are part of the same bonded set to allow explicit priorities to be set for backup interfaces. Round robin interface may be desired on all interfaces. URTWN adds support for Edimax EW78811UNV2, the N150, uh, a Wi Fi interface I'm very familiar with. Uh, jail sysctl net raw sockets renamed to allow raw sockets. In graphics, there are DM retry page fault handler on buffer data in transport fixing an XROAD crash on certain monitor connect disconnect events.
EV dev make adjustments for better compatibility with latest X server. And there's quite a lot of updates um, in user land libraries, miscellaneous, um, desync, which I can't remember what it is. Um, and various tools have been upgraded in the base system. Um, so vendor stuff like awk, bmake, yak, dialog, expat file, ldns, less, libarchive, libedit, libpcap, tcpdump, libreSSL, openSSH, tcsh, tnftp, um, libarchive, and xargs. Cool. Uh, and there have been compiler updates. They're currently using GCC 8 by default with GCC 4.7 built, but not used as a fallback. Uh, and this has not changed from 6.2. And there are new packages available. So if you run Dragonfly, you should go and play with the new packages. Okay. Very nice. Next up, we have an article from Clara Systems by their, uh, they have a series, pretty much um, FreeBSD versus Linux, but in a friendly way and uh, helping people rather than, you know, battling them against each other. Uh, this is about how and where to run OpenZFS. And they, explain at the beginning in this article we're not going to set out to tell you which operating system you should use like you would listen they would uh, they're both excellent of course but we'll lay out uh, the remaining open zfs differences to help anyone on the fence deciding which os to use beneath our favorite file system so okay december 2020 the open zfs project finally unified the open zfs code base between freebsd and linux platforms this helps ensure cross compatibility between the two but there are still some implementation and even a few feature differences worth paying attention to. And this is what this is about. And here is the first part, setting up the environment with Ubuntu Linux. And although you can install OpenZFS on the vast majority of Linux distros, your uh, manage may different or may be different for each one, because for reasons of space and clarity, the only one we're covering directly today is Ubuntu, especially the latest LTS version 22.04. Similarly, on the BSD side of things, it's worth noting that we're specifically talking about free BSD and its children, such as desktop-focused ghost BSD. Nothing we cover today should be interpreted to apply to either NetBSD or OpenBSD. The installation. Um, on top of an existing operating system or during the process installing the OS itself. Right? Uh, adding OpenZFS support to an existing system. FreeBSD is native OpenZFS support built right into every installation, so there are no packages to add to an existing FreeBSD system in order to get OpenZFS support. Ubuntu 22.4 has pieces of OpenZFS built in. Specifically, the default kernel has the necessary OpenZFS headers, whether you've installed OpenZFS or not, but you will need to add the package in order to use them. So that's an apt update and apt install ZFS utils Linux away. And that's all it takes. Okay, so apart from that, let's start uh, looking at installing FreeBSD 13 on a ZFS root. If you're looking to install a fresh operating system on OpenZFS, FreeBSD currently has a significant advantage built in comprehensive support in the OS installer itself. While running FreeBSD 13 installer, you're directly presented with the option to use an OpenZFS root. In fact, it's a default option. There really are no gotchas here, FreeBSD. Uh, FreeBSD's installer defaults to a single drive, but natively supports more complex pool options as well. And if you don't see the right options for exactly the pool topology you're going to like to have, it's unlikely to matter. You can always install the OS to a single VDEF and add more VDEFs later if necessary. Okay, whereas on Ubuntu, this is how it's done there. Uh, Ubuntu doesn't make life anywhere near so easy for those who would like an OpenZFS root file system. If you're using the desktop ISO, there's an option for an OpenZFS root, but it comes with a fairly significant gotcha in the form of ZZIS, 
Project Canonical, the company behind Ubuntu, left no more than half finished. ZZUS was or is a very ambitious project, which will split up your ZFS route into a bewildering and unnecessarily large array of individual datasets. This makes the operating system route difficult and awkward to manage, which the uh, ZZUS devs didn't consider to be a problem, since they envisioned ZZUS to be abstracting its management away from the user entirely. ZSYS also automatically takes snapshots prior to installation of new software using APT, which is a laudable goal, but did we mention the project that was never properly finished? Also, although ZSYS automatically takes snapshots, it doesn't automatically destroy them later, which means many users learn about snapshot management for the first time when the OS stops working properly due to a lack of free disk space. By the way, I breaking my tongue every time I try to pronounce ZSYS properly. Uh, Canonical's desktop ZFS installer also, unfortunately, lacks support for installing to multiple drives. This can be worked around to some degree by ZFS attaching another drive later to turn a single VDEF into your new ASUS boot into a mirrored VDEF. But there's no such workaround if you prefer, for example, a RAID Z2 route. So, but the best thing about ZSYS, in our opinion, is that it can be safely removed once the OS installation is over. If you use Ubuntu ZFS on root desktop installer but don't want ZSYS managing it anymore, you can simply apt remove ZSYS-purge and you will trouble be you will not you will not be troubled by it anymore. Although you still be saddled with far too many data sets in your OS root. Yeah, okay. The final ZSYS gotcha is one we don't uh, much mind given the rest of its drawbacks. It's only available on the desktop edition, not the server edition. Okay. Then there's a section about boot environments. Proper support for ZFS boot environments means allowing you to, for example, take a snapshot of your file system root prior to potentially dangerous operation, like an in-place major operating system upgrade. You would then be able to boot the system cleanly to the old snapshot if something went wrong. This barely scratches the surface of what can be done with boot environments, but it should be enough to give you an idea of what they're about. Previously fully support ZFS boot environments right out of the box, just like it fully supports ZFS on root in the first place. On Ubuntu, the ZSYS desktop installer gives you some support for boot environments, but we find it unnecessarily complicated. The third-party ZFS boot menu solution that's linked from the article uh, we discussed earlier offers more robust support. If you need proper ZFS boot environments under Ubuntu, we recommend the ZFS boot menu. Then they have a larger section about management of kernel tunables, because that's where you can uh, you know, get a bit of performance uh, towards your application or the uh, thing that you're running with this operating system. They describe a couple of case stats that are uh, important to know about, like the ARC stats, and uh, the same under uh, Linuxes, where you can use the uh, PROC file system to get these ARC stats as well. Very nice. There you can also you know, define how big the maximum ARC should be and give it a bit of breathing space for the operating system or give it as much memory as possible. So that's uh, also shown. There's also a section about storage device naming, like def by disk uh, or by def disk ID, and then uh, that's becoming important when you want to create your ZFS pool and need to, you know, name a bunch of devices or a bunch of uh, identifiers you've created. Another section is about NFS and SMB integration, uh, with a couple of examples even. Very nice. Uh, extended file stack attributes is also shown before they come to the conclusion. Ultimately, the differences between FreeBSD and Linux as OpenZFS host operating systems are quite minor. The pool will perform about as well beneath one OS as it does another, and the vast majority of its day-to-day -day maintenance work won't be different either. 
For most users and admins, we'd recommend not overthinking this. If you're primarily a FreeBSD admin and more comfortable with that operating system, that's the ZFS OS for you. If you're primarily a Linux admin and more comfortable with it, then feel free to stick with it as well. For the rare few admins who are equally familiar with both operating systems and genuinely have no existing preference, we give FreeBSD to not for easier root installation and better boot environment support, or if your data comes in the form of tens of thousands of small files and you need to extend uh, or have extended attributes, then Linux it is with XATTR equals SA options. All right, quite nice article. Let's jump from a ZFS file system right into the OpenBSD Mastery File Systems ebook in the news roundup. Uh, and so we have a real short blog post here from Michael W. Lucas at nwl.io. OpenBSD Mastery File Systems ebook is leaking out. Ugh. I had wanted the ebook before Christmas, but before New Year's Day isn't terrible. This is on the 29th of December. The ebook of OpenBSD Mastery File Systems went to sponsors, patronizers, and pre order folks yesterday. It's in my online bookstore today and will appear elsewhere through the weekend as I upload to all the stores and all the databases churn. Well, almost all the stores. The DRM free ebook sold in any store can be loaded onto a Kindle but the book won't be in Amazon's Kindle store. I'll do a blog post dedicated to this later because I wanted to come up as a, I wanted to come up easily on a search and I suspect that will quickly become an FAQ. But in short, when SSH Mastery came out in 2012, it was 9.99. That's $12.81 today. OMF is about the same length as that book and two followers right. So I'm comfy charging 11.99 for it. Amazon does not want me to price books between $10 and $20, so any book in that price range won't be available there. Print will take a little longer because of the pre-orders. Normally between sponsors and backers, I have to order and ship about 30 print books, no big deal. This time I tried pre-orders. I ignored the pre-orders as they happened, but now it's time to fulfill. I took a look and wow, 69 nice. uh, pre-orders. Yes, nice, but it's tripled how many books I must order and ship. I'll be rushing print proofs to my door, but still shuffling physical books around the country takes time. Once they arrive at my door, I'll drop everything to ship. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just a little while longer for those who uh, supported that book or have now bought it. Very cool. And now for the namesake of this episode, can your spam eater manage to catch 71% like this other service over on... Peter Hansteen's blog, who's always in the area of getting uh, on spammers' nerves, and rightly so. Uh, so measuring the effect of what do you do is important. Equally important is knowing what is the measure of your actions. So a question turned up on IRC that had him thinking. Do you have a percentage of the spam traffic you catch on your mail exchanges? The reason they ask is they just learned that fastmail.com claimed they catch 71% of all incoming spam. Uh, also, the rate of false positives would be nice to have, but that's likely harder to measure. So his first impulse was that he could consider a 71% hit rate on the low side of what we are seeing here at bsdli.net and associated domains. But getting actually useful data would require some thinking. That said, comparing a major mail operator that sells deliverables or deliverability and promises, a 71% catch rate for incoming spam and bsdbeastly.net would be like a 
comparing apples and oranges at best. So wildbeastly.net, which is also known under a few other domain names, is my main mail service for my personal use and for a very select number of other people. To the rest of the world, it is primarily a honeypot that generates security relevant data that other sites use and that contributes to IP reputation rankings. The site has been in operation in those roles for a little more than 15 years, since shortly before the original announcement in the article, Hey Spammer, here's a list for you, when we started using the gray listing and gray trapping based setup. We saw a sharp drop in undesir oh, undesirable messages, yep, actually reaching inboxes, and he observed a marked increase in load on the mail service that did the content filtering. Okay, so not long after I'd set up our early gray listing setup, a message turned up in the OpenBSD MISC mailing list that pretty much matched our experience. A 95% reduction in spam in line to be treated to content filtering. So setting up precise measuring became a thing to do when we could get around to it. So now enough with the background. It's relatively easy to extract at least some data that would give us a rough picture of the relative effectiveness of the gray listing and gray trapping versus the content filtering on receipt. The setup is very similar to the one described in the practically oriented parts of the effective spam and malware countermeasures. That's all linked. And it is part of the synchronization multi-domain setup roughly as described in this early article. So all of this is nicely linked from Peter's blog. Using only tools found in the OpenBSD-based system, I went on to collect data. Whenever SpamD closes the connection, it locks a message to that effect. So you can use that grab a certain day of the month or year, uh, while lock SpamD, whatever, grab, and then disconnect. Supplies the total number of connections closed by SpamD during the remember, fetched from the archive log file. Same thing, uh, grabbing for dash capital all capital black provides a number of connections during the 20th and 24 hour period initiated that uh, were done by hosts already in one of the block lists ah i see oh it's yeah those the command to get to the number of connections that had cleared the first hurdle and entered gray listing status would be another set grab for slash gray and so you can do a bunch of grabs for certain things you want to know about and then measure them and then he talks about um, putting that into a table so you can kind of uh, have everything nicely uh, aligned for each month of the year. And that's also provided. And uh, he is giving that also out as a CSV file for people who are interested in this. As mentioned earlier, the number of connections to the outer layer, SPAMD, is likely higher than that would be expected on sites that are not considered honeypot and home to in excess of 300,000 imaginary friends. Uh, that said, I think the data shows that catching the unwanted traffic early and discarding as much as possible of, of that traffic before it reaches the resource-hungry uh, content filtering is definitely beneficial. Even sites that do not actively bait the baddies out there would likely see noticeable energy build savings by having their mail servers run quieter and cooler, and they definitely will after getting into gray listing and optionally gray trapping set up in front of them. Those services have a truly low energy consumption profile. If you found this article interesting, useful, or just simply entertaining, I would like to hear from you. Please use the comment field, or if you prefer, send email to nix at nixdomain.no with a subject that least tries to sound sensible and relevant, otherwise you end up in the spam trap yourself. Yeah, nice article, uh, Peter, and we look forward to maybe some statistics at BSDCAN about this. Would be an interesting talk to listen to. Oh, nice, nice try. <laughs> Next up, we have a post on the Sammy bug mailing list from Nick Holland, crazy Unix shell prompts. Nick writes, I tripped across an idea recently, which I'm not sure if it is 
brilliant or evil, but I kind of like it. Standard Unix shell prompt is a dollar or a pound or a number of other things if you like unusual shells. Every operating system I've used in the last 40 years has some sort of prompt, but that's not exactly a requirement. And most of us start cramming other, other info into the prompt. For example, my standard prompt has grown to three lines. Uh, a blank line, username, a host, and then the full path, and then the dollar or the pound. Um, this line intentionally went blank for spacing. Um, nick at dub1.in.nickph.org, a path, uh, and then a hash. And yes, I get it. A lot of people think my multi-line command prompts are evil enough already. If you are in that camp, you might want to stop reading or even better delete this message now before you go on. I'm going to keep reading. You were warned. The suggestion was put a new line at the end of your PS1 prompt so that when you copy and paste to rerun a command or run it in another window, you don't have to unselect the pounder hash um, and everything else you put in it. Huh. So command line might look like this. Um, it's, it's just like a username and host, the path, a hash, and then a new line where you type. Well, I don't recall if the rest was in the original source of the message or if I came up with the rest myself. Make the first character of the prompt line a hash. So when you copy and paste, the username and stuff is a comment. But then you have to do the same for the PS2 continuation prompt. Okay, so I did. But I didn't like having a hash at the beginning of every command line because it makes it look like I'm running as root. So, whoa, slippery slope here. Use a few color changes to make the pound and terminal background color. Okay, so now I have a multi-line, multi-color PS1 with nothing in front of the command I'm typing. I warned you. So now I have something like export uh, PS1. Um, yeah, I can't read this. It's like t it's uh, terminal control sequences. Difficult, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, and username and host, but it's mostly terminal control sequences. So now, if I cobble together a few lines, I might wish to run again via copy paste or even put into a shell script. Um, yeah, there's a whole block. You have to read this email to to get uh, oh the full value. Um, this is just the discount version. Uh, except the leading pound are mostly grayed out and almost indistinguishable indistinguishable from the background. And now if I want to rerun this, I can copy and paste the entire block, including the prompt lines, and rerun it or run it somewhere else, or even just copy and paste it into a script and then just delete the prompt lines. DD is quicker um, moving to the right spot and deleting characters. Oh, by the way, the KS, KSH bash select command is way cool. So that's a different topic. I stuck it in here because, well, I could. Um, so the explanation of the prompt, um, so export is because we want the shell variable to impact everything invoked by the shell, not just the shell. PS1 is the default enter your command prompt here prompt. Uh, there's a new line. There's tpu set f7, set the color font to seven, gray on my white background, excuse the tpu command of these options embeds as an escape sequence. Um, uh, hash, make this line a comment if copied and pasted and rerun, but gray, tpu set f, uh, zero set font color back to black um, backslash dollar backslash dollar backslash dollar either dollar for the normal user or a hash for root repeated here well i don't want to take that hash you're running as root here dash u is username at is a literal at symbol spaces around it because i don't want to look like an email backslash n is a host name backslash w is the working directory uh, backslash dollar because the earlier three dollars or hashes weren't enough PS2 is the continuation prompt, and PS3 is the prompt used by select. 
Some things are surrounded by single quotes to keep them unexpanded. Other things like the PS2 are expanded and stored as escape sequences rather than running TPU every time a PS2, PS2 prompt is displayed. Enjoy. We're done. Honestly, I'm not sure if I like this yet, but I think I do. I figured I'd share this idea. Tested on OpenBSD, KSH, PD, KSH, and Linux Bash. Nick. Okay. Crazy scientist there. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you could spend hours configuring just your prompt and uh, yeah, be unique in this way. Uh, the next item is Linux binary compatibility Ubuntu on FreeBSD. This is a translated article from German into English um, because last time I read the German part, people weren't happy. So this blog is in German, but we have the translation here for you. So I'm good with either. Uh, so they talk about running Ubuntu on FreeBSD. And to do that, it's, it's a how-to article. So you can, if you don't even understand the German part, just read the commands there in English anyway. Um, first, we need to make the Linux binary compatibility available on FreeBSD. And this is done simply as always with the following command, service Linux enable. As a result, all necessary Linux modules are loaded from the kernel even after a restart. Then we create a necessary folders for the Ubuntu-based system. So you create a bunch of uh, directories under compat slash Ubuntu, like devfd, devshm, home, proxys, temp, and others. The Ubuntu folder can also have a completely different name at this point. As mentioned, the base system will later be found in this folder. In the course of the tutorial, we will be referred to much more often, so it is important not only to copy the necessary commands, but also to ask for understanding. Then you do a service Linux start. All right. Then it's the D bootstrap package to be installed. This is necessary to download the Ubuntu-based system and install it into Linux binary compatibility. The following command does this, pkg install de bootstrap. To perform the actual installation of Ubuntu, the following command must be entered. Yeah, it's de bootstrap dash dash arch equals amd64 dash dash no dash check no, uh, no check gpg jammy or whatever release you want and then slash compat slash ubuntu where we uh, created our directories earlier. Of course, it should be said that you should have an AMD64, otherwise enter i386 or ARM64 for the corresponding architecture. And again, Jemmy refers to the release name and the path under which the base system can be found is specified again here. After that, you run service Linux restart and then you can switch to the Ubuntu base system. To do that, run change root slash compat slash Ubuntu and then bin bash or bin sh, whatever you like, and then you're in that system or in that jail more like. Once there we want to use our package manager aptitude to update our base system if necessary. So you do apt update and apt dash upgrade dash y. I think this should be apt upgrade, not dash upgrade. Ah, easy enough. This program uh, or yeah this downloads the current package list and it upgrades the packages already installed. It does all this very straightforward. Uh, there may be a couple of errors in there, but you can uh, ignore them. And once the following check gives us an information about which writes apply to the temp directory, ls-lad-tmp, and they got the following output. So then they need to run and change root, uh, change mod, sorry, change mod 1777 on slash temp to fix those errors. And after that, you can now run uh, editing your own sources list and grab all the software that the Ubuntu repository provides to you. At the end, they 
conclude that they have tested the instructions on a PC and in a virtual machine, unexpected errors can of course always occur. If you stumble upon other errors and problems during the course of the tutorial, please let them know and then they can uh, update this or write another uh, blog post about how to solve this. Cool, nice and straightforward. All right, next up we have uh, a blog post on the NetBSD blog. Um, NetBSD is very good at blogging. Um, about the Reproducible Build Summit Venice 2022. And this was posted on the 2nd of January, 2023 by Pierre Proncheri. Uh, the sixth Reproducible Build Summit took place exactly two months ago in Venice, Italy. These three days of workshops were filled with a succession of interactive sessions where everyone attending had the opportunity to present or learn about anything related to build reproducibility. This includes the status of specific open source projects, techniques to locate, analyze, and understand issues, or also how to explain and communicate better around this topic. So what is it about? Reproducer build builds are a set of software development practices that create an independently verifiable path from source to binary. Why is this important? Anyone may inspect the source code a free and, so free and open source software for correctness or vulnerabilities. However, most software is distributed pre-compiled with no method to confirm whether it actually corresponds to the source code published. This allows attacks in a number of different situations from a malicious developer to network attacks or the compromise of build infrastructure. The purpose of reproducible builds is therefore to allow the verification that no vulnerabilities or backdoors have been introduced during the compilation process. By promising identical results for a given source, build reproducibility allows multiple third parties to compare correct results and flag any deviations as suspect and worthy of scrutiny. The base system of NetBSD can be built reproducibly since its 8.0 release. It can be enabled in make.conf when building NetBSD, for instance. A first step has been implemented for a package source when using GCC on NetBSD to build packages. Some important tools have been packaged, such as Diffoscope. However, further aspects of build reproducibility are not covered in package source yet, and we welcome contributions to improve this situation. This would help uh, bring this additional security mitigation to the NetBSD community, as well as other systems and users of package source. If not already, you should definitely consider build reproducibility for your environment or software projects. It also applies to firmware when sources are available. Thankfully, NetBSD offers this ability for the base system already, but more work is required for packages. As for myself, it was an honor and a pleasure to attend the summit. Keep in touch with the community, participate in the event, learn from everyone attending, and obviously to represent the NetBSD Foundation here. I'm looking forward to the next summit, which should take place in Hamburg uh, from the 30th of October to the 2nd of November, 2023. In the meantime, do not hesitate to get in touch, including to the NetBSD Foundation or to the package source community specifically, if you want to get involved in any aspect of build reproducibility or represent NetBSD or package source projects for the reproducible builds community. Ah, Venice. Um, yeah, Venice would be cool. <laughs> it's certainly a nice Your spot. I haven't there. been, but I hear good things. I mean, I'm sure Coimbra will be nice. That too, yeah. Well, we're looking forward to conferences, as you can imagine. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. And this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. 
Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. We have something for you that is feedback and questions again. We have some uh, for you from people that have written to us a bit earlier uh, than recently, but uh, they're still relevant. First one is Felix with uh, Managing Jails with Ansible question and goes like the following. Hello, everyone in the BSD Now team. Over a year ago, I started using FreeBSD as the main operating system in my home lab and recently tried to automate more and more things, mainly setting up FreeBSD VMs. After using FreeBSD VMs for the longest time, I decided to try jails because they need much less resources and offer better privilege installation. I read a lot about jails online and in books. Absolute FreeBSD and FreeBSD Mastery jails by Michael W. Lucas were really helpful and decided to only use jails going forward. At the same time, I started to convert my manual installation steps from my notes into Ansible playbooks, which made it much easier to manage all of my VMs and services. I see where this goes. Or where this goes reminds me a lot of my own steps. When I was looking for ways to set up services in previous DJs with Ansible, I came across a talk that Benedict gave uh, about the management of FreeBSD with Ansible in 2017. Oh, wow, so so long ago now. Um, if I can remember correctly, he also mentioned jails in the same context, but didn't go into much depth. Nevertheless, are there any tips and tricks that you can give me on how you can best manage FreeBSD jails with Ansible? Setting up RCConf, install software and SSH keys, create users, and such. So I wrote... Um, back when we received this email mentioning that we were that I basically know of two ways first you can always run a shell command to execute something like you want on the command line like there's a shell module in Ansible where you can just say little jail or shell command jxx something bin sh or you can use a community provided module that um, is um, provided to run jail connections and manage jails this way. And then the follow-up from Felix was that basically he tried that and it didn't work all too well. So he's now using the uh, shells module for the things to uh, need to set up. So definitely good interaction here. And that's how you basically do it. The more it gets complicated, the more you want to automate that stuff and abstract it away so that you don't have to scratch your head every time. Cool. Thanks for the feedback. Cool. Next up, we have um, a piece of feedback from John Baldwin on the Beehive Networking Setup article. Uh, John writes, uh, admittedly, parts of this article might be quite dated. It still talks about VM run.sh, but it does document the NAT setup I still use on my laptop with DNS mask. And he links to a 2014 FreeBSD journal article on setting up Beehive on FreeBSD. I'm actually guessing because it's not loaded. It's, it's a big download. Um, yeah, it's this one. Um, I didn't know VM run SH was dated. I still use that sometimes. I'm, I'm an odd fellow. It's, I wouldn't copy what I do. It's decent enough and in the system still, so why not use it? Yeah, it's really annoying if you need to <laughs> do other stuff. Um, yeah, okay. Thanks, John. It was really good to get feedback. I, I've read this article several times. Um, I think big parts of it are still relevant, but it's a bit locked away as a PDF. 
it's probably a lot more discoverable as a as a blog post somewhere. And I guess you know, um, eight years later, you could probably extract and repost the content on a on a blog post if you want. And I don't think the the journal would mind, but you would yeah. know you you also produce the journal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, they regularly pr produce uh, updated articles or updated how tos like this. So if there's something newer, then they would have probably posted it by now. Okay, that definitely thanks for the feedback, John. Unexpected, but definitely appreciated. And the last in this week is Welton with a Beehive Web Admin uh, link. Goes like the following. Hi, I'm a big fan of your show. Thank you. Uh, I've been listening for years. Oh, wow. I especially like the information that you deliver on Beehive. Okay. Yeah, what we find, we, we provide in the uh, show for everyone. I would like to you guys look at the Beehive control server. And that's a link to Beehive Web Admin. Let your audience know your thoughts on the show. So uh, we have that linked in the show notes, of course. And that is a virtual machine control panel where you can, in a nutshell, have a graphical and secure web control panel for FreeBSD's virtual machines. Because the more you have, the more difficult it may be to manage. Looks cool. And that certainly looks cool. Yep. Screenshots look very promising. Thanks. Uh, probably we should try it out to give it a bit uh, more. Uh, you, you uh, we'll the, have a better idea. What you, you want the podcast to extend into software reviews? <laughs> well, <laughs> someone someone should try this and write a review, and then we can cover it on the podcast. Is that really? Oh yeah, yeah. that's a nice way of you know cross pollination engagement. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty powerful. Or. If someone else has tried this out already or uses this for a number of systems, then let us know and we'll be happy to give out a shout out to the people who developed it. Cool. Thanks for the link. And um, that pretty much concludes this episode of BSD Now. Thank you for the feedback and all the people who provided the links to us. And that's always uh, filling our episodes because otherwise it will be us scavenging and hunting the webs for new bits and pieces about PSD. 